Take a look at my face, Parker. A good long look. It's the last face you'll ever see in this life. Welcome back and welcome to Season 2, Episode 15 of Me and My Friend Pete, another Donuts and Dimes production. The podcast where we explore all things THE Amazing Spider-Man comic book series. I'm your host, Peter Parker's persnickety pal, Gerald. Before we pull out of the station on this week's crazy train, we've got two brand new passengers riding with us. First, all the way from Austria, birthplace of Marvel heavy hitters Mystique and Destiny of X-Men fame, and a one ring master of crime from classic Spidey lore. I'm talking about the one and only, Lena Rose. And then from my own home and stomping grounds, the one and only, Kimberlim. Kimberly, what's up girl? Welcome to the crazy train. Welcome to you both, we are glad to have you. Bunch up people, make room. And you're joining us at such a seminal moment because we're covering the amazing Spider-Man number 40, Spidey Saves the Day, featuring the end of the Green Goblin. And when we last left the King of Swing, he was assaulted outside of his home before being strapped to a chair by the grinning Green Goblin, who's just revealed himself to be a one Norman Osborn, father of Peter Parker's college classmate, Harry. We've got J. Jonah Jameson doing op-ed pieces. We've got an appearance in the Midwest of the one Betty Brant. We've got Aunt May and Anna Watson worried sick about the missing... Prince of Forest Hills. And we've got stunning action and art from Johnny Romita Sr. and a story by Stan Lee that made me quiver. And we've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado. We've got the amazing Spider-Man number 40. Spidey saves the day featuring the end of the Green Goblin. Let's swing! Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. The credits. This one was written by Smiling Stanley, penciled by Jazzy John Romita. That's J-R-S-R. Mickey DeMayo on inks, and Sam Goldham Rosen on letters. The cover. The cover of this issue opens to THE Amazing Spider-Man in white and dark blue atop spider webs as usual. Behind this, we have chocolate brown smoke filling the air. Beneath this, Spidey is getting a little lunch. With a raging fire and shades of yellow and orange behind him, we find our hero suited and booted, standing on a tiled steel floor. Both fists clenched, the eyes of his mask furrowed in anger. He stares down at a one green goblin, a villain on his knees, his head down, the tips of his lime green pointed ears aimed at the ceiling, his purple sleeping cap drooping over his left forearm that's pressed against the floor, his fingers curled, a gray frayed cable just beneath his hand. He's got his right hand, fingers curled in pain as well, pressed against the steel floor at the feet of our hero. Behind Spidey's right leg, we have a destroyed gray rectangular mess with cables protruding from it. In the background, partly swallowed up in flames, we see the goblin's bat-like glider, curled, crumpled, and covered in soot. I'm thinking Spidey just had a little lunch, 
washed down with a Sunday punch, and stage left of our hero, we get a midnight blue caption box. Spidey saves the day. A matching banner along the bottom center of the page reads, The end of the Green Goblin. Let's get into it. Page one opens to the now standard yellow banner with the amazing inside of it and Spider-Man written in red. Beneath this, we get a sky blue screen caption box. Spidey saves the day, featuring the end of the Green Goblin. Before a torn yellow caption box spills all the tea beneath it. If you missed our last ish because you were orbiting Earth on a spaceship, the only acceptable reason for a true Spider-Files copping out. All we need to tell you is that Spidey has been captured and unmasked by the Green Goblin, only to learn that his ubiquitous enemy is none other than Norman Osborn, father of Peter's college classmate, Harry Osborn. And now, Tiger, you're on your own. I promise I did the intro before I read this. And this splash page couldn't be more different than the cover. We've got a green lab desk in the background, a chemistry set bubbling on its top and stage right in the foreground. We've got Peter Parker, his SJB pants tattered, his collared shirt just shreds of white over his chest and arms, his formerly white socks now grayed from the black smoke of the goblin's glider, the elastic in them gone, so they're drooping around his ankles over his brown loafers. He's strapped to an iron chair that's connected to what looks like a gray radiator, making me think the chair is heated. So he's comfortable, of course. Can't have a king of swing being uncomfortable. Both his thighs held down by slim iron cords, his wrist at his sides wrapped by the same. His chest and arms wrapped four times over by the same steel cords, binding him to the chairs. His brow furrowed, a loose strand of brown hair curling up towards the ceiling. He leans forward towards his captor, a one Norman Osborn, lording over our hero in his green goblin costume, minus his mask. Lime green scaly arms and leggings, neon pink underwear over his leggings, shirt and gloves, lavender pointed pixie boots, belt and bag of tricks slung over his right shoulder, the pouch sitting on his left waist. He's jabbing his left thumb at himself and holding his goblin mask up in his right hand, ice grilling the Prince of Persnick from the Forest Hill Strip, screaming. Take a look at my face, Parker. A good long look. It's the last face you'll ever see in this life. Man's got murder on the mind. And on Pete's mind, I've got to stall for time. Keep him talking. When I strain against these steel alloy coils, he's tightening with. Before he says the exact thing to buy himself some time. I should have known it would be you, Osborne. Anyone who'd have a son like Harry. Beneath these shots fired, we get a white banner caption box. Conceived in fantasy and dedicated to the proposition that all Marvelites are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of comic book quality. So say we all. So say we all. We turn the page. Page two opens to a close-up of Norman Goblin, his head cast in a yellow glow, a look of shock on his face, his eyes, white pupils. You shouldn't have mentioned Harry. Why did you remind me of him? I mustn't think of him. Do you hear? I must forget. Forget! The camera pulls in tight on his face, sweat beads forming beneath his wavy red hair on his forehead as an existential crisis unfolds. He says Harry thinks he's just a businessman, that he can never know the truth and won't ever let Spider-Pete tell him. The camera even tighter now, He's just a face in a panel box. He screams. That's another reason why you must die, Parker. Only you know who the Green Goblin is, just as I know who Spider-Man really is. Pete watches the man unravel, the gears in his head spinning. But what he doesn't know is, I'm just as worried about Aunt May learning my secret identity as he is about Harry learning his. I've got to get out of this somehow. For her sake, the shock will be more than she could bear. And he's right. Dr. Bromwell, Bromwell by name, Brom's very well by reputation. Yeah, baby, yeah. If you recall, 
told Pete that any stress on Aunt May still recovering from her surgery could be fatal to her. May, an avid Spidey hater and thinker of her nephew being the definition of frail, would surely keel over if she found out Pete and Spider-Man were one and the same. Of course, this was exactly before the Green Goblin pulled up to Forest Hills and sneak attacked Pete on his front lawn. That's last issue, ASM number 40, or the Golden Liability, Rumble, Young Man Rumble, here on Me and My Friend Pete, back to Pete Goes On To Think. That's it, mister. Stand there and glow while I keep chugging at these blasted bombs. Normie, wide-eyed and white-dilated pupils may be out of his mind, but he's focused enough to notice Pete trying to break the ties binding him to the metal chair. He says he's enjoying watching Pete struggle, but he's the one clenching his teeth like he was doing Molly before he snuck our friend. And Pete knows it. He wants Normie to keep gloating so he can keep tugging at his bonds. Norm goes on to say he's done talking, that now's the time to figure out how to finish Pete off. Pete, thinking it's now or never and feeling his coils loosening, starts poking the elf-eared bear. Green word, Gobby. It'll make a real celebrity out of your son, Harry. Not every fella can have a murderer in the family. When Norman says not to mention Harry, Pete continues, staring over his shoulder at the coils wrapping his wrist. Why not? What have I got to lose? You can only polish me off once. Bravery, thy name be Parker. Thinking Osborne's a psychopath, he leans forward in the next panel. Anyway, you're not fooling me. You don't give a hoot about Harry. He told me so himself. He told me how you've changed towards him these past few years. Norman, burying his face in his hands, shouts. Lies. All lies. He doesn't understand. Nobody understands. Nobody really knows why I became the Green Goblin. Pete's right about Gobby being a psychopath, but he also knows he's got to be careful. One wrong word and it'll be bye-bye Spidey. He tells Norman that nobody cares why the man became the Green Goblin, that the man probably lost an election bet. Norman, sweat beating on his forehead once more, snaps! You fool, I'll show you what it matters. I'll make you listen. Then you'll understand. Pete, feeling a monologue coming to open page three, hopes the story Norman's about to tell is a long one, that he's only managed to get one finger free and can't exert enough leverage. Norman, his way spinning in the foreground, begins his tale. Harry's mother passed away when he was just a baby. I had to bring him up alone, and I tried my best. Pete says they'll give the man father of the year before the judge takes him away. <laughs> because, you know, it's psychopath. But Norman continues, and I promise, if Mysterio's long-winded, Norman Osborn's a downright blowhard. I was a good father. I was. I did my best to be a real pal to my son. But it wasn't easy. We see Norman and Harry, both much younger, Harry around 10 years old. They're walking down the street, Norman, SJB suit, telling Harry he has to work late again so the kids gotta eat dinner alone. Harry, orange sweater, green slacks, snazzy as they come, says he understands with a crestfallen look on his face. After all, I had a business to take care of. Money was the most important thing of all. I had to get rich. I needed wealth, for that was the key to power. We see Norman and Harry in Harry's bedroom next. Harry sitting at his work table in an olive sweater vest and green slacks, a light illuminating his homework book. Norman leaning on the back of Harry's chair tells the kid he's going to have to do his homework himself because he's got to get back to the office. Harry reminds Norman that he promised to review his bio work for his exam tomorrow. Norman, his thoughts already out the door, says Harry will have to do the best he can. But Harry didn't have anything to complain about. The more money I made, the more presents I bought him. I wanted everyone to see what a great father he had. We see the two in the next panel. Harry, hands in pockets, stage left. Norman behind him in the middle of the panel, his arms folded. A bright red Schwinn bicycle with a large sky blue ribbon on it, glistening in the foreground. Norman says he bought it for Harry as a surprise. That'll give the kid something to do while he's out of town next month. Harry, unenthused, says thank you. I even took him to ball games when I had a chance. Nobody can say I wasn't a perfect father. Do you hear? Nobody! 
We find the two in the polo grounds next, judging by the short right field wall they're sitting in front of. Thanks, MLB The Show. And Harry, his mind full, asks Norman if the two can talk for a while. Norman says sure, but now they're watching the game. When Harry presses saying they never have a chance, Norman replies, Later, kid. Later. Norman is making a mistake we see often. In providing for his son, he's neglecting the one thing most children want from their parents above all others. Time, attention, and affection. I can't judge him. I'm no better. Know thyself and try to change. But that's a little me. Let's get back to Pete. Norman, his head lowered in the next panel, his hands pressed against his lab desk, has managed to pull some sympathy from our hero who's watching him intently. He's sicker than I thought. He's living in a fantasy world of his own making. He's almost forgotten me. But his story has me hooked now. I still can't figure out what made him become the Green Goblin. Pete Parker is sucker for a good origin story. Norman wonders aloud how he could expect Harry to understand how hard he had to work for success. His story continues. I had to be ruthless in business. I allowed no one to stand in my way. Not even my partner, a man named Professor Strom. We get a caption box at the bottom of this final panel reminding us when this happened. Remember Stony Face Strom from Spidey number 37? Sure do. Dot dot dot. Smiley. That's swinging and clinging and banging. Here on me and my friend Pete. Back to. We're in Osborne's beautiful office. He's sitting in a high back chair, his left hand gripping his right fist, elbows on the desk. The New York skyline in the background as the lab-coated, bald-headed Strom stands on the visitor side of the desk, leaning forward, his left fist clenched, railing on Osborne. He says the two are partners, that Norman can't do this to him. He says they built the business together. Most of the inventions, he, Strom, created. Strom goes on to say that he only borrowed the money from the corporate account. He didn't mean to steal it. And if Osborne calls the police, the man will be ruined. So now we know at the very least, Osborne didn't frame Strom. The man was embezzling from their company. Osborne, the desk phone he probably used to call the police still smoking near his elbow, says it's too late for Strom now, that he's already sent for them. The police, that is. Perhaps I was too hard on Strom, but it was his own fault for being careless, and it gave me complete control of my business. On four, we see Osborne, his back to the door, the fingertips of his hands pressed together, staring out of the corners of his eyes as Detective Tomas, in a purple suit, and Officer Ike restrain a now belligerent Strom. Strom shouts that Osborne can't do this to him, that he'll get out of jail someday, and then revenge will be his. Osborne, cool as a cucumber, says Strom was always too emotional, that the man's outburst doesn't impress him at all. He tells the cops to take the man away, that he'll prefer charges in the morning. It's broad day, but the man is going to be there the next morning to prefer charges. Osborne's cold-blooded. He's going to have this man sit in a cell overnight to add insult to injury. We're back in the present now. Pete realizing the fool he was in the now infamous ASM number 37. So that's why Strom tried to kill you with that robot of his. And that's why you resented Spider-Man's help. What a joke. Me, trying to save the Green Goblin. But Osborne's going quiet. And Pete knows he's got to keep the man talking. I still don't get it, Osborne. You became wealthy, successful. You achieved your goal. So what made you turn to crime? What made you become the Green Goblin? We get a close-up of Pete's hands in the next panel as he continues to fight with the cables looping his wrist and hands. Norman says he's already told Pete this much, he might as well keep going, especially since all of his secrets are going to die with the hero. Pete thinks that's not going to happen as another of his fingers slips free. So, what happened? Did you win a green costume in a raffle or something? Osborne replies, You're mocking me, are you? And the story continues. Well, it's all right. You may have your little joke. It's the last you'll ever enjoy. As for me, I still remember that fateful night when it happened. Osborne's in a chemistry lab, beakers bubbling on the desk beside him, his blazer off, sleeves rolled up, working, working, rifling through papers. These notes of Strom's which I found in his desk contain some new strange looking formulas. 
Since he's in prison now, I'll check them out. If they're worth anything, I'll be able to cash in on them. And then Harry came in, but I couldn't be bothered with him at a time like that. Harry, now closer to the age we know him, is in his standard green suit and bow tie. He's got his arms open in a questioning expression as he says, Dad, have you forgotten? It's parents land at my school this evening. We should be there by now. And of course, Norman snaps. Forget it, son. I can't make it now. You go on ahead. Maybe I'll get there before it's over. Harry says what he thought, and Norman cuts him off. I said forget it, swinging his arm in a judo chop motion. There are no chops in judo. So, it's a good thing I didn't go, because if I had, I might never have become the Green Goblin. Instead, I stayed and worked through the night, hour after hour, until just before dawn. We see Osborne, Erlenmeyer flask in his right hand, Cheldahl flask in his left. The Erlenmeyer is bubbling with a lime green liquid. Both flasks are spewing lime green smoke. Osborne is cooking up something vicious. He wonders aloud why the solution is turning green. It's beginning to bubble, to froth, and that sound, it's steamy. You know no good origin story is complete without an explosion and we get one here as page five opens to, and then a second later, the world exploded before me and we get a long horizontal. Osborne, his head thrown back, both hands raised in front of him in a beautiful and blinding flash of light that starts from the lower corner of stage right in a white flash, blending into yellow rising diagonally, and finally the yellow blending into an emerald green that fills the page, laced with lime. Whatever Osborne just concocted nearly took his life, but pressure busts pipes and makes diamonds. I was in a hospital for weeks, as the best surgeons in the state worked night and day to save my life. We're in an ER next as surgeons operate on Norman beneath the yellow glow of ceiling lights. They're doing brain surgery apparently because the lead surgeon says that the damage is deep within Norman's brain and they can't reach it. His second shouts that at least they saved his life, that the man's recovery should be rapid now. The fools! They thought my brain had been damaged. They didn't suspect that the accident made me more brilliant than I had ever been. No one suspected. Not even my son. And we see Harry, green suit and bow tie on, standing just outside the double doors of the operating room, his head down, a book tucked beneath his left elbow, so we know he's run here from school. A blonde nurse walks up behind him, letting the kid know he can see his father now. Harry, internalizing Norman's problems, thinks it's his fault his dad is in the hospital, that the man was tired and overworked from trying to support Harry. But I had no patience with Harry, or with anybody. I wanted to be alone, to think, to plan. So a few days later, Norman's laid up in a hospital bed, a scowl on his face, wearing powder blue pajamas, and he's ice grilling Harry who's walking towards the exit of the hospital room, his right hand pushing open the saloon style door. Why is there a saloon door as the entrance to this hospital room? It's comic books. Let it go and come on. Either way, a marked change has come over Norman, where he was once an almost absentee father, he's now downright verbally abusive. Go downstairs and get a taxi. I'm getting out of here. And get that hangdog look off your face. It bothers me. How did someone like me ever have a sniveling weakling of a son like you? The two exit the hospital, a blonde haired nurse looking over her shoulder with concern as she enters in this, our panel of the week. Why is she concerned? Because Harry asked Norman why is the man suddenly angry with him? He asked if he did something wrong. Norman, I mean, I'd say he snaps, but it's his new state of being. You haven't done anything. That's the trouble. You're a spineless jellyfish, like everyone else. Now be quiet. I've got to concentrate. The genuine look on the woman's face has solidified this panel of the week. She is staring at Harry as if he is pitiful. And Norman is treating the kid like he's pitiful. But it is coming across so beautifully in this panel. Big Johnny doing big work. Although nobody knew it, my accident had made me think clearer than ever before. 
Suddenly, a daring plan took shape in my mind. Norman's grand plan? With his newfound strength and intelligence, he's going to become the greatest costume criminal this world has ever seen. Excuse me? Shut it, Doom! The idea became an obsession with me. It haunted me night and day. I knew I had to do it. And so, many months later, in the final panel, we see Norman's wasted no time. I mean, he wasted some time. Said three months later. Shut it, you! He's already crafted a mask for his villainous costume and is holding it up above his lavender bag of tricks. He shouts that he's going to make his costume his favorite color. Green. But more important in this moment, the man already owned that lavender satchel. Style flare, thy name be Osborne. And so, at last, the Green Goblin was born. Six opens to the Green Goblin. Suited, yes. Booted, <laughs> pixie pointed, of course. Atop his bat-shaped goblin glider. This is a little retcon action, because if you recall, in Green Goblin's first appearance, way back in ASM number 14, he rode a literal flying metal broomstick before upgrading to his glider. That was... Just deserts. Here on me and my friend Pete. Back to. Either way, in a goldenrod light floating on his glider, the Green Goblin knows what he needs to do first to create his criminal empire. Now for my first victim, the amazing Spider-Man himself. Back in the present, Norman, still in everything but the mask of his costume, which he's clutching in his right fist, is looking over his shoulder at Pete. He says he chose Spider-Man because he knew if he could beat the King of Swing, the whole underworld would respect him. Pete, still having no success with his binds past those fingers free, apologizes for not being cooperative and wonders how much longer he can keep the man talking. Norman raises his mask up and shouts that the time has come. His greatest triumph is at hand. He's waited months for this moment, this supreme moment, that fate couldn't deny him. As the Green Goblin pulls the mask over his face in the next panel, Pete's off panel, thinking, I can't give up now. I must listen for the sake of our name. But still alloy is too strong. I... I still can't snap it. Goblin says it's fitting that his face will be the last one Pete ever sees. In the final panel, Pete's gray socks looking especially sooty as he leans forward, ice grilling the Goblin, thinks that the chemical explosion changed Osborne for the worst. He wonders how he can reason with the madman as the Goblin talks his smack. But I mustn't let the end be too easy for you. First you must sit there, helplessly, and wonder how I shall strike, and at what precise instant you'll perish. Making me think of Zazu in The Lion King. Didn't your mother ever tell you not to play with your food? They say a man's entire life flashes before him in a moment of deadly crisis. And so it is with Peter Parker. On seven, Pete, his eyes on the floor, may just be accepting his fate. I'm not afraid, I'm afraid to, die. to die. I faced the Grim Reaper too many times in the past. But never to see Betty Brennan again. Never to be able to explain what Aunt May. What a hero. His life on the line and he's not thinking about his mortality at all. The goblin screams at him. Big Parker! Plead for mercy! Why won't you beg? But Pete's on his Curtis Jackson. Sticks and stones may break bones and the shells may hurt me, but I take it like a man. You beg for mercy. Shout out to 50 cents. But even as the anguished youth desperately continues to strain against his bonds, trying to shut out the goblin's taunts at a modest frame house in Forest Hills, we find... We're on the scene. The scene? 20 Ingram Street. The modest two-story home of May and Pete Parker, where May, her auntie sends tingling, is opening the front door in a silk green bathrobe for a one Anna Watson, who enters the room in a red dress, both hands gripping a lavender cashmere sweater over both shoulders. <laughs> we see you, Anna. Fashion's always important here on me and my friend Pete. Ball out. May thanks Anna for coming. Anna reminds May that the doctor told her not to get upset. She assures May that wherever Pete is, it can't be too serious. May says Pete's never stayed away so long without calling. Anna takes her hands as May continues into the next panel. He's always been such a good boy, but he's so frail. I know something must have happened. I just know it. 
Anna, great friend, tells May to stiffen that upper lip. She asks what Pete would say if he saw May like this. As May breaks down in tears, Anna continues. He's probably out on a date, having a good time, and he doesn't realize how late it is. Even my Mary Jane has come home late occasionally. She gets a spark of inspiration, reminding May that Pete sells pictures to the Daily Bugle, that maybe J. Jonah Jameson's heard from the kid. She says she'll call because the Bugle stays open all night. But after finally getting past an overworked secretary, JJ's still overworking these secretaries. Betty Brant, where are you when we need you? We see the miserable magnate gripping the receiver of a phone in his left hand, a cigar in his right, his teeth gritted as smoke climbed towards the ceiling. Does JJ tirade? Do 4.3 million people ride the NYC subway every day? Wait, of course he tirades. No, Parker isn't here. What am I supposed to be? A lost and found apartment? He's probably out stealing hubcaps somewhere. Empty-headed teenagers, they're all alike. Man said Pete's out in the street doing the Jason Todd. He slammed the phone down in the next panel, finding the rhythm in his anger. Miss Brown, come in here. Where's your notebook? I want to dictate an editorial about how the younger generation's going to the dogs. Then I'll do one about the older generation too. Might as well blast everyone. How did a simple phone call turn into an op-ed piece on the state of human beings? Miserable. And after Mrs. Watson has given me Parker the news as gently as possible. In the final panel, May is sitting slouch in her leather armchair, fiddling with her hands while Anna tells her there are still so many places Pete could be, but May won't be consoled. Anna, you don't know Peter the way I do. He's the most considerate boy in the world. He'd never stay out late without calling me unless something's happened. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, the Infinity, Infinity, Infinity page. page 8. Just in time to witness May, a single tear running down her cheek as she falls into her woes. He might be in trouble somewhere. He might need me. If only I knew. Oh, Peter. Peter. Anna, realizing there's no helping her friend this way, thinks she has to go out and get a sedative for the Queen of Queens. She tells May not to worry, that she'll be right back and races out to do so. Meanwhile, at a railroad station in the Midwest... Another female who has played an important role in the life of Peter Parker pauses between trains. And we see for the first time since ASM number 33, that's the only way out is through. Internal monologue. Here are me and my friend Pete, the one and only Betty Brant, fashion and Bob on flawless as usual. She's rocking a full length cherry red topper coat, red pumps with matching purse and white gloves. Go ahead, Betty. Welcome back. As people pass around her carrying suitcases towards destinations unknown, she stands off center towards stage left, lost in thought. I must return to New York. I realize now that a girl can never run from a decision, no matter how painful it may be. She's ready to face her fears. And of course, comic and cosmic timing have the radio on a newsstand behind her bringing up another of her fears. This is Art Roberts at station WLS in Chicago, wondering why nothing has been heard of Spider-Man these past few days. Hearing the name of the man responsible, in her opinion, for her brother's death, Betty spirals internally. Spider-Man, the mass adventurer whom Peter admires. How I hate the very sound of his name. He represents everything I dread. Danger, uncertainty, and fear. Finding the sterner stuff within herself, she focuses on more pressing concerns. But why dwell on Spider-Man when I have a far bigger problem? If I return to the Daily Bugle, will Mr. Jameson give me my old job back? And if he does, what will it be like seeing Peter Parker and Ned Leeds again? And what will they say when they see me? Will there still be a place in your lives for Betty Brant? Betty, I think I speak for all of them when I say, Yes! Thus, the sad-eyed girl walks through the station, immersed in her own troubled thoughts, and strangely unable to erase the haunting image of a costumed figure 
a figure who seems to somehow overshadow all else as he silently swings from memory to memory. Betty, her head sky blue in profile stage right of a long horizontal in the final panel, falls back onto thoughts of Spider-Man whose full body swinging forward in her thoughts from stage left surrounded by smoke. Headshots of the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Ned Leeds, the brown-haired Peter Parker, and the Reed Richards-working, cigar-chomping J. Jonah Jameson abound. Betty wonders why her thoughts are so stuck on Spider-Man, of all people. And this panel right now makes me realize the women characters in this comic rarely interact with each other in these early years. Misogyny? Thy name is The Amazing Spider-Man. On 9, we get a stunning glamour shot of Betty staring up towards the ceiling of the train station. Her white gloved left hand pressed to her cheek. The lamplit sign for track 2 stage left of the panel as she continues her thoughts. When I think of all the times I've seen Spider-Man, spoken to him, and yet, he's an enigma. He could be anybody, even someone who might know. But I hope and pray that he isn't. I couldn't stand it if he were someone close to me. Someone whom I love. Betty, we ain't gonna tell you. As the rail steward shouts all aboard in the next panel, Betty, a porter carrying her Shout back to the porters, walks with her back to us towards her train, thinking that maybe, just maybe, when she returns to New York and sees Peter, she'll be able to forget about Spider-Man forever. As you probably guessed by now, the pages you've just read are a typical Marvel device for bringing new readers up to date as painlessly as possible. We just didn't want you to think you picked up a romance book by mistake. But now, face front, It'll be web spinning time before you know it. We're back on the scene. The scene. Pete still bound to a metal chair. The Green Goblin still taunting our hero. Now, for having his eyes closed. He's putting Peter Parker to sleep. But no! That's it, Goblin. Ren and Reaver. Say anything. Just so long as you keep talking. If only I can keep goading him. You're a washout, man. <laughs> You're a washout, man. I beat you every time we fought before, and I'll find a way to beat you again. Call this man a washout. The 60s are on the scene. And Goblin snaps. He calls Peter a liar, saying the kid never beat him, and he's going to prove it. He pulls a giant metal device with a large glass lens on his face from who knows where, and connects it using plugs and wires to his head. I can project mental pictures of our previous battles by means of the retroscope helmet. I'll show you that you never beat me. I was always your master. Always. Just another example of a Spider-Man villain hustling backwards. Imagine the implications a device like this could have on the film industry if it works. We could all be Spike Lees with just our thoughts in our living room. And it does work. In the final panel, the device shines an image of the greatest villainous trio in Marvel history on the far wall. They are racing towards us. We see the yellow-shirted, tan-pants ox, both his beefy fists raised lumbering forward trailed closely by the laureate of the lasso, Montana, and the fanciest of Daniels, Fancy Dan in a lavender suit, white fedora with a red silk stripe, black button-up and gray tie, his fashion on flawless as usual. Ladies and gentlemen, the Enforcers! They are kicking up dust as they press forward. Goblin says he's sure Pete remembers these three, and Pete does. He says Goblin needed their help to fight him. Spidey number 14, Natch, dot dot dot. Stan. Again, that's just deserts. Here on me and my friend Pete. On 10, we see Spidey in the oversized viewfinder working as he uppercuts Montana's head back with a left. The man's cowboy hat flying, while at the same time sending the ox's jaw north. The last position you want to be in, in a fight. With a straight right that sends the lumbering giant into Fancy Dan. Pete, admiring his handiwork from off-panel shouts. But how does this prove anything? I was able to lick them all. There. 
You can see it. Goblin shouts that this wasn't a loss. It was a lesson. He knows now that he has to fight his own battles because no one is as great as he. But Pete's not buying it. That so? Just cut these coils from my wrist and it'll be the goblin's last gobble. Goblin won't be baited though. He says Spidey's had his chance and muffed it before he goes back into his memory, pulling up a scene of the Long Island Igniter himself, the Human Torch, his body ablaze, flying towards the Green Goblin from stage right to left, where the Goblin is hurling a pumpkin bomb. Goblin says the next time they squared up, Pete was saved by the Torch because Goblin had no desire in fighting the hottest shot. Spidey was his enemy. Spidey, number 17, as if you didn't know, dot dot dot, S. That was Vicious Vicissitudes, here on Me and My Friend Pete, back to Goblin says he fled, but Spider-Man didn't beat him. That the truth is, the kid was saved by the torch. And he's not fully wrong here because we get a scene of Goblin shooting through the skylight of the banquet hall in the next panel, masking his exit in black smoke while no less than three fireballs shoot around him. Torch was hurling. Pete shouts, that's your vision, Goblin. From where I sat, you ran like a scared rabbit. But that's actually the version, because if you recall, Spidey ran off before the Green Goblin did, mid-battle after finding out May had just been rushed to the hospital. In the next panel, Spidey's working again, this time stage left, spraying a large web net over a brown pinstripe suited Lucky Lobo and three of his wise guys. Goblin saying he made the same mistake twice, that teaming up with Lucky Lobo was a hindrance, not a help. But if you recall, Goblin didn't team up with Lucky Lobo, he tried to extort the mobster and expose his racketeering to the police. This man is rewriting history. If you don't believe us, check back to Spidey number 23. We kid you not. Dot, dot, dot. SL. That was pressed on all sides. Here on me and my friend Pete. Back to Goblin shouts. Not only did you fail to stop me, but you were lucky that I let you escape with your life. A pity, Spider-Man, that you will not have that same luck this time. In the final panel, see Spidey lunging from a building towards the Green Goblin, who's rocketed north on his glider, dodging our hero's capture attempt. But again, Goblin isn't being truthful. In this epic battle at the water treatment plant, Spidey ran out of web fluid, and he, Green Goblin, ran out of tricks in his little lavender bag, so he retreated. On 11, Goblin gets into what he calls his final remembrance, the actual one time, if we're not counting when he punched Spidey in the back of the head as Norman Osborn, and we're not, he did get the best of Spidey. We see him in a warehouse on the East River, because it's always the East River. It is always the East River. They're right outside the East River right now. Goblin's on stage, no less than 50 suited mobsters standing in the crowd beneath him as he points to the now deceased crack shot, silenced revolver holding, Crime Master. Goblin's carrying Spider-Man unconscious around the waist with his left hand, pointing at a shot Crime Master with his right. All together now, class, Spidey number 27, Scholarly Stan. That's the Turntable Tale. Here on me and my friend Pete, Back two. Thinking he was a match for the Green Goblin, the masked fool dared to attack me, once again giving you a chance to escape. You never were any good as a fighter, Spider-Man. You were merely lucky. And we get a shot of Green Goblin hurling pumpkin bombs from his glider towards the Prime Master below, filling the viewfinder with peace. But as I flew off to safety on that fateful day, allowing you a few more months of life, I knew I would again return when you least suspected me to finish the task I had set for myself, namely, the complete and undeniable destruction of the amazing Spider-Man. As Ike and Bowtie Charlie, resident 616 beat cops, round up the mobsters on the floor of the warehouse in the next panel, the goblin is in flight again, literally, firing a laser beam over his shoulder from his right hand at Spider-Man, who's leaping from a wooden support column, spraying a web line with his left, trying to capture the evil elf. In the next panel, we see Pete, 
his outer clothes in tatters, and Parker's not talking anymore. He's thinking. It worked. I kept him talking long enough to free one hand. Now it'll just be a matter of seconds to rip the other coils away. He only needs seconds. Goblin, removing the viewfinder from his head and placing the device neatly on the table behind him, glances back at Pete, saying he can tell our hero's still struggling with his coils, that he's going to make things easy for the webhead since he's doomed regardless. Does Pete choose this moment to strike? No! In the final panel on page 11, Goblin, both hands gripping the lever on the metal chair our hero is bound to, raises the lever up, screaming that they're going to shoot the fan ones. So when he beats Spider-Man this time, there will be no doubt. He wants to go one-on-one -on -one with the Great One. Pete, swung backwards from the sudden shock of being freed, isn't buying it. You fast-talking phony! You knew I was about to break loose anyway! That's why the grandstand played! Okay, Parker, this may be the most faithful fight of your life, so don't fumble the ball, fella. There's too much at stake. Goblin opens 12, shouting at Pete to hurry up and get changed. That he doesn't want to beat a teenage washout, he wants to beat Spider-Man. Pete, pulling his rag of a shirt from his shoulders to reveal his Spider-Man shirt beneath it, is ready for a brawl. He really thinks he can beat me. He knows we're going to fight on his home ground, with all the odds in his favor. Or so he thinks. In the space it takes to change panels, one gutter to be sure. Spider-Man is on the scene. Suited? Yes. Booted? Of course. Pulling his glove onto his left hand to complete his costume. Fire red and golden rod yellow, highlighting the King of Whip as he screams. All right, Goblin, you're gonna get your wish. You battle Spider-Man, all right? And this time, there'll be no doubt as to who's the winner. This is the payoff, you grinning gargoyle. This is for real. Translation, it's time for the showdown. Buckle up. But then, before the youthful adventurer can make another move, he's hurled back off his feet by the staggering impact of two rapidly tossed stun bombs. And we've got action. One bomb explodes on the shield wall behind Spidey's head, the other, his feet, knocking him backwards. The goblin reaching into his bag for a third, shouting that Spidey's right for once. This is for real, and he, Goblin, really came to play. And this is only the beginning. While Spidey silently kicks himself for believing this would be a fair fight, Goblin hurls the third pumpkin bomb towards Spidey, shouting that the first two were just to set the mood, that this one is his anti-Spider-Man explosive. But Spidey, shouting at the Goblin that he's not the helpless type, is ready for it. Before he even touches the floor, he's crafted a web net with his right hand covering the entirety of his body, sending the pumpkin bomb bouncing back towards Goblin, who asks how the hero can spin the web so fast. Fast? Why shucks, I'm just playing it cool. You should see how speedy I am against a really dangerous enemy. But Goblin, leaning backwards with his right finger raised and cocked in the final panel, isn't worried. In fact, he's smiling, shouting that he can't be hurt by his own weapons. On 13, he detonates the pumpkin bomb with a blast from his finger laser, filling the room with a green explosion, shouting, Have you so soon forgotten the peerless powers which the Green Goblin possesses? Spidey replies, Sure, just as I have forgotten what a full-time economy science cornball you are. Call this imp a cornball. Spidey, pushing up from the floor, is taunted by the goblin who hops onto his glider and kickstarts the engine. So, the condemned man held onto his slender facade of waning courage till the very end, eh? My compliments, Spider-Man. Too bad your power is not equal to your courage. Spidey, realizing the goblin will be trickier and more maneuverable than ever on that glider, finally gets to his feet just in time to shield his face and chest with his arms from the Green Goblin, who's turned the tail end of his glider towards our hero and unleashed a burst of fire, asking Spider-Man if he enjoys the heat. He's toying with me. He feels so confident that he's enjoying me in advance. As the Goblin rockets and circles around our hero, filling the room with black smoke, Spidey realizes he's got bigger issues than just beating the Goblin now. For so long as he lives, he knows my secret identity. And if I may ever learn of it, I lose, even though I may have won. 
goblin confusing Spidey's silence for stupor shouts. Ha! You're groggy, confused, as I knew you would be. Spidey throws an angry haymaker with his right hand in a goldenrod space of the final panel, sending Goblin flying off his glider, shouting, Thanks, Gobby. I hope you'd come within reach if I acted helpless enough. Spidey just pulled the, you can say it, the old rope-a-dope, or the old takes a lickin' and keeps on ticket offensive, or the old cross-deck mic check one two one two skadoo, better known here as the Zingaroo Shuffle, and Gobby's Feet, hands, hell, head, shoulders, knees, toes, and sleeve cap all pointed north. The last position you want to be in when you've just strapped a superhero to a chair for an hour. Spidey hit this man so hard. How hard did he? Goblin twists end over end while we're turning the page and lands on his neck and shoulders. His feet still pointed towards the ceiling stage right to open page 14. His goblin glider, free of its rider, goes flying off panel stage left as goblins scream. My famous flying broomstick! It crashed into the wall! It shattered! It was my greatest weapon! And now you've destroyed it! Spidey, nowhere in panel, tells goblins to stop with the belly aching before he makes a grown man cry. In the next panel, Gobby's on all fours in the pose from the cover, stars dancing in front of his eyes as Spidey advances towards him, fists clenched, his hands and legs the only things visible as he moves towards the villain in this panel. Johnny Sr. working with the dynamic angles right now. I'm loving it. And Spidey? Is this it? I never thought I could beat him so quickly. Yeah, yeah. what do I do now? He still knows my secret. And I'm not a murderer. What to do, what to do. But then, moving with the deadly speed of a striking boa, the seemingly defeated goblin seizes one of his fallen live wires in an insulated glove and... In another dazzling panel, the goblin from the floor thwips. That's right, thwips the live wire towards Spidey, shouting, Now isn't this a shocking development? The wire wraps around Spidey's left ankle as he thinks the goblin was just playing possum before electricity surges through his body. But not our friend. He frees himself from the wire in the gutter between panels and flips hot to the ceiling, his spidey sense ablaze as Goblin lets fly with no less than three shots from his finger lasers. Back on his feet in the next panel, Goblin shouts that the ceiling won't save Spider-Man, that he's got ways of bringing the hero down. But it's so nice and cozy up here. However, if you're lonesome down there, I'll come down and keep you company. Though, just between us, you're a real party poop. Still quipping in the final panel, Spidey descends from the wall. But Goblin's got a pair of big brass ones. He tells Spidey to come closer. And let's loose with another finger blast to open 15. Spidey's ready for this one too. As the laser beam comes towards him, he rips the bolted metal chair from the floor and uses it to block the laser blast, before hurling it at the Goblin, shouting, I hope your decorator won't mind my changing the room's decor, but a fella gets tired of being used as an unpaid target after a while. Hope you won't mind moving. A shitty thing like this can make them break your lease. Spidey's gonna get the Green Goblin evicted. But the goblin, showing world-class gymnast agility, stretches both arms wide and does a low front flip. Standing in front of the crater in the wall left from the chair, the smile finally gone from his lips, a trace of fear in his eyes. He shouts Spider-Man is too stupid to know when he's beaten, that he should have finished the hero off when he had a chance, and blames Spidey for keeping him talking for so long. Spidey, knowing the man's paddling down the Nile, replies, Kept you? Nobody could have stopped you. It was like someone just pulled out the plug before racing towards the goblin, who's already reaching back into his bag of tricks. But I've learned my lesson. I'll never take chances with you again. He keeps saying he learned his lesson and he keeps making the same mistakes. Either way, he hurls battery power packs, swirling around my head, fluttering across my eyes. Can't see, have to brush them away. And Spidey is now surrounded by no less than eight robotic bats, 
doing his best to get rid of them as the goblin races into the final panel. He stops at his chemistry desk and grabs what looks like a dentist's office's x-ray machine. Aiming the device at Spider-Man, he shouts, Ah! I see you finally hurled them away from you! Just in time for you to bear the full brunt of my fully automated goblin cannon! Spidey shouts that he's all choked up, but immediately has to duck and roll to open 16 <laughs> as the goblin replies that washed up is more like it and unloads the cannon at Spidey, turning the wall behind our hero into ash. Spidey keeps rolling, literally. Perhaps my strength can't save me now, Gobby, but I have another ace in my home. Don't tell me you've never heard of my swinging spider speed. Agility on best ever. And tucking his legs into his arms, rolls forward, his body in the shape of a ball, and goes bowling for Gobby's. Knocking the man's feet from beneath him. And before Goblin hits the floor, Spidey has uncoiled, catching the villain with a right kick across the face that connects so hard, the villain's face disappears behind a WAK sound effect, shouting the whole time. You've too many weapons, too many surprises at your disposal. I can't afford to give you another breather. This is the wrap up, Goblin, one way or the other. Goblin falls backwards from the impact, knocking over chemical filled vials and the exposed live wires. He's electrocuted immediately, both arms and his pointed sleeping cap out in front of him. Spidey's screaming. Can't grab him in time. He's getting the full effect of the electrochemical charge. So Spidey was still trying to hit this guy and then grab him before he hit the floor. He didn't want this man to be more injured than he had to be. What a guy, that hero Spider-Man. On 17, we find the goblin, his upper body covered in thick black smoke, his lower half motionless on the goldenrod floor. Legs exposed, both pixie-shoed feet pointed towards the ceiling like he's the Wicked Witch of the East. As Spidey stares at him in shock from stage left. This fight is over. Did you try another trick? No, it can't be. I saw what happened. Nobody can fake something like that. There's only one thing I have to find out. Is he still alive? Spider-Man races towards the goblin, kneels down beside him, pulls the mask from the villain's face, and grabs Norman's right wrist. I feel a pulse. He's still breathing. Thank heaven I didn't kill him. But it's the one result I fear. I've conclusively defeated him. Yeah, how can I prevent him from betraying my secret after I've turned him over to the police? He's starting to speak. He's mumbling the name. The name? Harry. My son. Harry! Norman turns a sweat-stained face towards Spider-Man, smoke surrounding them both, and asks who the man is. Spidey wonders if Norman's faking it. A fair thought. But a moment later lets the thought go because if the guy was, Spidey's Spider-Sense would still be telling our hero that Norman was a threat. But the shock must have affected the man's mind. This means there's still hope for me. And perhaps even for him. Norman sits up in the next panel, rubbing the back of his head. Staring down at his outfit, he wonders aloud what he's wearing before shouting that he has to see his son. He needs to help him with his bio homework. <laughs> My man Spidey beat 14 pages in about five years out of the Green Goblin skull. The amnesia-inspiring arachnid. The fist to cuff and forget me not. The golden liability. The amazing Spider-Man. In the final panel, as the fire rages out of control, two firemen and bowtie Charlie the police officer have arrived on scene. The firefighters shout they're going to break the door down. But Charlie won't hear of it. He says let him shoot the lock off because it'll be faster. Any excuse to get that gun on. Inside, Spidey gets busy. The fire department. I've only got seconds to act. Perhaps I have no right to be judge and jury. But why should he be punished for something that happened when he wasn't really himself? Something he can't even remember now. And there's Harry to think of. It will break his heart. If I can just change his clothes fast enough. 
The kid's not going to let this man go down for being a homicidal megalomaniac if he can help it. On 18, we see Spidey helping Norman now back in his tan suit up from the floor as Charlie shoots the lock from the door and shouts at the firemen to put their shoulders into it. The Green Goblin costume near their feet, Spidey grabs it and hurls the clothes into the fire, thinking that this ends the sordid career of the Green Goblin forever. Spidey pulls Norman to his feet and slings the man's left arm over his right shoulder. Raising his left hand up to stop the advancing police officer and firefighter, he shouts, Stay back! Everything's alright! I'm bringing him out! There's no more danger! One of the firefighters shouts, It's Spider-Man! He's holding on to someone! Bring him towards us! Whoever thought that mass wall crawler would turn out to be a hero! Another screams, Hero my foot! How do we know what he really was up to? He may have caused the fire! And to be fair, Spidey's always starting the fire! Charlie, gun still raised and smoking, says they may have just caught the webhead in the act. Either way, after pawning Osborne off on the police officer, huh. Spidey leaps onto the sheer wall of a nearby building in the next panel, Charlie shouting his best, Ricky Ricardo. You got some splaining to do! A firefighter more itchy finger than Charlie tells the cop to just shoot our hero down, but Charlie's not that guy. On what grounds? I'm not a stormtrooper, pal! Spidey shouts that Norman Osborne is a hero, that he helped bring down the Green Goblin and needs to be taken to a hospital immediately. In the final panel, as Spidey web swings away, Charlie shouts at him asking the hero where the goblin is and how does Spidey figure into all of this. Spidey replies, Can't stop and explain now, but I promise you one thing, the Green Goblin will never trouble you again. As for me, I can't wait for another second. I've gotta get back to my man. And gets ghost. Seconds later. Web swinging at over 200 miles an hour apparently, Spidey's reached as far as Hill's home, perched on a telephone pole above the house, staring down at an orange sedan in his driveway, thinking the worst. Oh no! It, it, it's what I fear. That's Dr. Bromwell's car at the door. But I've got to be careful. Can't let anyone see me like this. He bounces off the top of the car, clings to the sheer wall of his house, and flips into his bedroom window thinking if anything happened to the Queen of Queens, it'll be his fault. Why must I hurt everything I touch? Uncle Ben, Betty Brand, and now Aunt May. Pulling the mask from his face, he pulls open the top drawer of his dresser and pulls a goldenrod button up from inside. That's a lot of pulls. I know. Tears running down his face, he's still in thought. Betty's female intuition must have made her leave me. She must have felt that I bring nothing but heartache to those I love. And he's not done. In rhythm now, he slides his pants on and buttons up his shirt. The amazing Spider-Man, able to climb walls, to fight, to run, to think better and faster than any dozen ordinary men. Even those who hate me, envy my powers. My powers. What a what joke. joke. In another second, he's front flipped out of his window, grabbed the eve of his home with the fingertips of his right hand, the eve, house overhang, and in the darkness, lands outside of his front door. How much thought can Pete cram into a second? I sometimes think they prove it to be nothing but a curse. I, I trade places with almost any normal everyday man. At least Aunt May wouldn't have to suffer for my secret. So a lot. He bursts through the front door of his home in the next panel to meet Dr. Bromwell, holding his finger to his lips. Quiet, son. She finally fell asleep. I've placed her under mild sedation. We find Aunt May sitting in her armchair, her legs draped in a goldenrod blanket. In the foreground, Bromwell tells Pete the woman was very concerned about him. Pete says he was afraid of this, and Bromwell wastes no time dressing the Prince of Pensivity down. You what? Then why did you stay out so late without calling? I warned you that she must be spared from any serious worry or shock. I never thought that you'd be so unfeeling, so wrapped up only in yourself. Bromwell, fed up, places his tan fedora onto his head to open page 20, continuing. Luckily, I've reached her in time to prevent any serious ill effects, but if it happens again, it may be too late. Pete says it won't happen again. Bromo says for both of their sakes, he hopes not, and gets ghost. After the door closes quietly behind him, 
A brooding Peter Parker maintained silent vigil through the long, lonely, seemingly endless hours until... May wakes from her sleep in the next panel to find Pete sitting in the armchair across from her. Peter, is... is that you? Pete, leaping from his chair, a smile on his face, shouts that May's all right. She says of course she is, now that Pete's here, and wastes no time wagging a finger at her nephew, now standing over her. But it was so late, and you hadn't called. I didn't know what to think. The city streets can be so cruel, so dangerous. Pete, smiling towards us in the next panel as May presses a hand against her forehead, goes to play seven of the Golden Liability Playbook. Play seven? If May ask, lie. It's all my fault, May. I was studying with one of my classmates and we just forgot how late it was getting. May says she knows how much Pete's scholarship means to him, that she knows he wants to stay on the Dean's list, but he needs to get some fresh air and exercise. If May only knew the kids almost lightly getting into some arachnocardio. She tells Pete he's flushed right now and has a fever and springs into mommy mode. Forcing the kid into his bed and pulling a bowl of soup from who knows where, she begins literally spoon feeding him in the next panel to Pete's protest. Aunt May, this is ridiculous. I feel fine. It's I who should be looking after you. May says nonsense, that some broth and a good night's sleep will do him good, that the fact that Pete's home again has made her feel like a new woman. Pete doesn't have the heart to tell her that he's so warm because he was battling in a fire. The selfish git goes on to think, My best bet is to let her minister to me. It's good therapy for her. But who am I to judge? I know I was a baby every time I got the tiniest of sniffles and expected my Nana to take care of me despite her own suffering. Shoutouts to my Nana. Shoutouts to Aunt May. Shoutouts to all the people who put our needs first so much, we take it for granted. I have a bit of a cold right now and wish my grandmother was around to give me honey and sugar and Vicks up my feet. Don't it always seem to go rambling? Back to... And in an expensive hotel room on the fashionable east side of Manhattan, a father and son seem to find each other again, as though after an absence of many long, now forgotten years. Spiderwebs gracing the background of the page in a red backdrop, Harry Osborne leans over a one Norman Osborne, who's laying in a blue gown covered by a green blanket, a glass of water with straw by his bedside. Harry says everything will be all right, that the two can be together again. Norman replies, I can't remember what happened, son. These past few years seem to be forever buried, forever lost to me. But the future lies ahead, and it will be a good one for both of us. Somehow, I know that now. Cue the TGIF. Aww. In the final panel, we get next issue. Don't miss Peter Parker's startling decision. Plus, an all-new fantastically powerful super foe for Spidey. Enough said. And we're out. One of my favorite things about great comic books is pacing. I'm always talking about pacing, and this comic book moved at such an engaging speed. The Green Goblin's origin story, to the break with Betty in the train station, to Aunt May and Anna Watson wondering about Pete's whereabouts, to JJ tirading, to the battle between Spidey and Gobby, there were no dull moments. Stan came to play, and if he came to play, Johnny Sr. came to work. I challenge anyone to find a panel in this issue that doesn't perfectly capture the feeling in the moment it is drawn. The panel of the week was chosen because of the emotion I felt watching that moment, despite the breathtaking battle scenes throughout the issue. Before starting this podcast, I hadn't read many, if any, of John Romita Sr.'s work on Spider-Man, but issues like the last two make me so excited for the future of his legendary run. And speaking of his legendary run, We've just finished Masterworks Volume 4, and Volume 5 is the first where Johnny Sr.'s talent is on full display. Starting with 
The Amazing Spider-Man number 41, The Horns of the Rhino. The first appearance of the horn-faced villain known for charging first, asking questions. Well, never. That's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode. But there is more me and my friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. I promise you. If you sign up to patreon.com slash HSPP in the Key Keeper or High Council tiers, patrons have a vault filled with bonus episodes covering comic book stories from all over the multiverse of comic book universes. Next bonus episode, we're back in the Top Cow universe, in the darkest corner to be exact, running through The Darkness Butcher. Number one, a tale that sees Mob Fixer and Jackie Estacado's right-hand man, Butcher Joyce, on the wrong end of his routinely grisly trade. The problem with knowing where all the bodies are buried? Somebody may just go through you to get to them. I warn you, as we often do in the Top Cow universe, there will be blood. And if you become a patron before ASM number 50, you receive a special thank you lapel pin for being a patron during season two. Let's keep these good times rolling. You won't regret it. You got questions? Send them to me in my friend Pete at gmail.com and I'll go digging for the answers. Follow us on Instagram at MNMFP underscore podcast. The panel of the week can be found at patreon.com slash HSPP. Thank you so much to all our patrons, new and seasoned. We couldn't do it without you and we wouldn't want to if we could. All that said, that's all that said. That dusty trails are calling, so there's no use stalling. Looks like the beginning of the end. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care. Leave a comment on and the Patreon. Please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, baby, you gotta make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.